Welcome to this week's sermon from Amblecote Community Church. Amen. Thank you, Andy. Good morning. So, to Genesis. We finish our Genesis series today. We've spent much of this summer term walking through the book of Genesis, exploring some of the opening themes in God's story. And I hope that this series has served you well. I hope that it's helped you not only to grow in how to read the book, how to get the most out of it, um, but has also introduced some of those key themes that we see develop and expand and grow through the rest of Scripture and through the rest of God's story, which, of course, from Genesis moves to the people of Israel and the Exodus and then into the wilderness years, the promised land, the kings, the prophets, and to exile and the coming of Jesus, the incarnation, death, resurrection, ascension, into the church, up to 2023 in Starbridge. We live in a continuation of the story of God that stretches all the way back to this series that we've been preaching on this term. And today we'll finish by looking at one of the episodes in the life of Joseph. If you were here last week, or if you've caught up on podcast or YouTube in between, you'll know that last week we looked at Joseph's brother Judah and his transformation. And we spent most of our time in Genesis chapter 38, 39, the next chapter. And this morning we're going to spend our time in Genesis 39, the next chapter on, which is the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Now the very fact that these stories are right next to each other in Genesis, gives us a clue that um, the author of Genesis probably meant us to compare them. He meant us to read them as a contrast. Say, whereas in Genesis 38 last week, we saw Judah's unfaithfulness to God, his lustfulness, his uh, injustice towards Tamar, and all that kind of built up to his transformation. Today, we read in Genesis 39 about Joseph's faithfulness his obedience, his chastity. And so we're going to work through the chapter together and then spend our time meditating a little bit on the biblical theme of suffering because of righteousness. And that's kind of where we will uh, land today. So feel free to open your Bibles if you have them or get them up on your phone. Um, I will, uh, the, the text is on the screen but I know that some people find that easier to see than others. So if you find, think you're going to find it difficult to pick up the text on the screen, then uh, it's very easy to get the Bible on your smartphone. You, there are apps, but you don't even have to have an app, really. You can just go to Bible Gateway or something, and, and you can follow it through. Uh, I'm using something called the ESV version, if you want the exact word for word. But it doesn't really matter. If you use a different translation, it'll basically be the same. So, uh, if you remember the story so far, either from last week or from the musical, uh, Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers, who at the last minute relented of killing him and sold him to some Ishmaelite slave traders instead, and they've travelled with him down to Egypt. And we have heard no more about Joseph since then. The brothers have just told his dad that he's been killed by a wild animal. And the first we hear of Joseph after this is at the start of chapter 39, which we'll read together now. 
Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So initially, in Egypt, things go pretty well for Joseph. If you're going to be sold as a slave, then it's no bad thing to be picked up by the captain of the guard. And it was usual in Egypt at the time that slaves taken from the east would usually have fulfilled administrative or management duties. They were often perceived as being kind of more highly skilled and perhaps more reliable than uh, common Egyptian slaves who tended to do the manual labor. Uh, But even so, Joseph... uh, Well, I would say landed on his feet, but as Genesis says, the Lord was with him. Joseph was placed in a high-ranking official's house. Potiphar would have had a large estate as captain of the guard. And we're told that because the Lord was with Joseph, not only did Joseph prosper, but Potiphar prospered as well because Joseph was placed with him. Potiphar's household also prospers. Say we continue. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said lie with me. I'm not sure if that's a specific translation of exactly what she said or if there was a bit more to it but that's the gist. Lie with me but he refused And said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. So last week, we saw Judah sinning against God and against Tamar. And here we see the contrast to Judah in Joseph's righteousness. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, but not just a kind of a one-off night where they've drunk too much moment of temptation, but an ongoing day after day, constant temptation. And yet over and over again, Joseph refuses to sin. He does the right thing, but he doesn't just do the right thing. He does it for the right reasons as well. How can I sin against God, he asks. Joseph knows that the issue is primarily one of obedience to God and only secondarily one of doing what is right by Potiphar. So Joseph is remarkable here for his chastity, for his faithfulness, 
for his obedience. Verse 11. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out in a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. And we see, as is so often the case, that the one who tries to tempt the righteous to sin lashes out when the righteous won't join them in their sin. Potiphar's wife being rejected again. Joseph, to his credit, having run from temptation when all else has failed, just get out the situation. Potiphar's wife decides to ruin him and takes opportunity of the lack of witnesses and of some circumstantial evidence and first stirs the mob of the household to create the pressure and then accuses Joseph to her husband. And verse 19, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners here in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And we'll finish the text there. Now, the end of this chapter is a bit ambiguous. Reading between the lines, as I think we are encouraged to do, it seems that Potiphar didn't really believe his wife. You see, if he had really believed that Joseph had tried to rape his wife, then he would have just had him killed. It was well within his power to do that. That would have been the appropriate response of the owner. The fact that he imprisons Joseph instead implies, to me at least, that he didn't really believe his wife. And therefore, Potiphar may well not really have been angry at Joseph but angry at the fact that his wife has put him in a position where he can't do nothing because she's made the incident public to the whole household. And now he is forced to lose the man who has managed his household so well and has overseen the growth of his prosperity, the man whom he doesn't have to pay attention to his affairs because Joseph handles it all for him. And you know, have to agree with that reading there. You, you, know, you can disagree with me if you like. But the point is that Joseph here loses all that he's gained and finds himself in an even worse position than before, now not only a slave, 
but an imprisoned slave. And prisons in the ancient world were not half what they're like now. And yet, the chapter finishes by saying that because the Lord was with him again, Joseph started to succeed and to prosper, even in prison. And the story goes on. But we will stop the story there for today. So Joseph prospers in Egypt because the Lord is with him. And yet, he then suffers having been wronged once by his brothers and having seemed on the road to recovery, he's then wronged again, unjustly, and imprisoned even though the Lord is with him. In fact, the striking thing about this narrative is not that Joseph suffers although he is righteous or despite being righteous, but that Joseph suffers because he is righteous It's because he feared God and resisted temptation and did the right thing that he's falsely accused and condemned to imprisonment. My question for those of you who are Christians this morning is have you got a theology that can handle that? A year or so ago we uh, offered some whole church teaching on suffering There was about 12 podcasts that went out trying to explore what the Bible has to say and what we believe as Christians about the issue of suffering and the many questions that that raises. And in, you know, what I'm talking about this morning could be added to that whole church teaching as another angle on the issue of suffering. Because the Bible repeatedly tells us that not only do bad things happen to good people at times, but sometimes suffering comes to the righteous because They are righteous. And I want to think a little bit more about this with you in the time that's left to us today. Because the principle isn't just found in Joseph's story, but can be found throughout the scriptures. I want to give you some examples so you can see this. Most obviously, we'll start with Job, our exemplar of suffering par excellence, apart from one. In the first couple of chapters of the book of Job, it is made clear that it is because Job is, quote, blameless and upright, fears God and turns away from evil. And because he is such a man, he undergoes the suffering and the trials that he experiences. In fact, as the book goes on, his friends say to him, come on, Job, you must have done something, mate, over and over again. And yet the book maintains that Job suffers because of his righteousness. The prophets often suffered. And as far as I can tell, none suffered more than Jeremiah. Poor fellow. He was faithfully speaking God's word to a people who didn't want to listen. And amongst other things, was sort of beaten in the stocks. Had his scrolls burned, was threatened with death on a regular basis. The worst one, to my mind, is when he was thrown in a cistern full of sinking mud, gradually being submerged until he was rescued at the last minute. Or to take an example from the New Testament, the Apostle Paul was struck blind and converted when he met with Jesus on his way to persecute the church. And uh, while he was 
um, in a house still being blind, the Lord spoke to a man called Ananias and sent him to pray for Paul that he would recover his sight. But he said this to Ananias. God said this to Ananias. He said, go to Paul. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And this happened in Paul's life. He suffered greatly. And therefore, in one of his letters, he's able to speak of filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He suffers because of his obedience to the call of God. And this wasn't a strange thing for the first Christians. Perhaps most telling of all is 1 Peter, when Peter writes in his first letter, If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. To this you have been called. For Peter, suffering because of righteousness, because of doing good, was not the anomaly. It wasn't the unusual thing. It was seen as part of the calling of following Jesus. And as Peter says, the reason why this must be so is because of the one whom we follow. Jesus is the exemplar above all others of this. He suffered because of his righteousness to the point of crucifixion. And he himself said when he was with his disciples before he was crucified, the servant isn't greater than the master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If Jesus had to suffer because he was righteous, so too we must expect the same. But we need to have a short interlude at this point. We need to have a short interlude to talk a little bit about self-deception. Okay? The reason being that um, it's entirely possible for us to see ourselves as martyrs, suffering righteously because of our good deeds, when in fact the reason we're having troubles is because of our bad behavior and our immaturity. So we all have our blind spots, and we just need to be clear about that. You know, for example, we may... Um, feel like we are righteously holding the line for the truth and holding on to God's word and his standards and feel that we're suffering uh, because people have disconnected from us or they don't want us at their meetings or gatherings or because we've been sidelined. And it may be the case, it may be the case that we're suffering for our righteous clinging to the truth. But it can also be the case that we are belligerent unwilling or unable to have a mature conversation and cannot contemplate the possibility that we may be wrong. Others may believe they suffer for their righteousness when they lose friends simply for being honest. When what can actually be happening is that the person is being a bully and lashing out in anger under the mask of being an honest person. And still others may feel, you know, all I've tried to do is help this person again and again and they've gone and badmouthed me behind my back and I'm suffering for my righteousness. When what is in fact going on 
is that you are interfering and inappropriately involving yourself in that person's life. And in desperation, they've tried to talk to someone else to get some help to deal with you. Okay? I say these things because it's all too easy for each of us to deflect from our own sin and immaturity and instead to paint a picture of suffering for righteousness' sake. And what we need is the grace of God (laughs) that rather than consciously or unconsciously seeking to deceive ourselves and others and avoid the hard work of facing our own need to change, you know, we, we, need the, we need the grace of God to give us humility, to be open to the possibility that we may be the problem and pray that maybe God puts good friends around us who are happy to point out to us when that is the case and the grace of God to help us in all of that because we're all capable of these things. So that's an interlude. I think it's important we face that. But having talked about it, we can now place that to one side and return to the kind of main point of what we're talking about today and ask, what is it then that we can learn from this part of Joseph's life? First of all, and quite transparently by now, I hope, given all that we've looked at in the Bible, we have no right to expect that our righteousness means that things will go well for us. And that is so important to integrate into our worldviews if we want to have a truly Christian worldview. If we expect that knowing God and following Jesus and learning to be holy will mean that our life will always go well and justice will always be done, and God's blessing will be seen in material prosperity and deliverance from suffering, then we do not yet have a Christian worldview. Things might go well for us, but they might very well not. And John Wesley is a man who really got this. John Wesley, a famous revivalist. Um, One of my favorite stories about him, he was a man who was always being persecuted, sometimes for his own bad behavior, (laughs) and other times for his righteousness. And uh, one of my favorite stories about him is uh, he hit this patch in life where things started to go well, where he was welcomed to places where he was going to preach, and people provided hospitality for him. And he was traveling along a road, and he started to get deeply concerned about this. And he worried that he had abandoned being obedient to God because of a lack of difficulty and suffering in his life. And as he asked the Lord about this, a bloke popped up from behind a wall and lobbed half a brick at his head. And he said, thank you, Lord, for your confirmation that I'm still in your will. Second, I think like Joseph, one simple thing we can learn from this passage is that um, you know, we, there's an encouragement to grow, not into just doing the right thing, but to doing the right thing for the right reasons. You know, we can do the right thing for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes because we like feeling self-righteous. Sometimes the pressure of others, etc. to keep the peace. But we can learn, like Joseph, to do what is right in order to honour God and out of our love and our service to him. And that tends to be the obedience that sets us free, where we do the right thing 
for the right reasons. Doing the right thing for the wrong reasons tends to distort us on the inside eventually. Third, we must learn to accept God's timing. I feel for Joseph. Having been sold into slavery, as he's in Potiphar's house and sees him prospering and rising and God being with him, he must have thought, this is, this is how God's going to put this right. And then he's thrown into prison and wronged again. And then, if you know how the story continues, things go well in prison. The king's cupbearer has a dream. Joseph interprets it. The cupbearer is restored to being at the hand of the king. And Joseph sort of says, oh, remember me when you get out of prison. He must have thought, this is it. God's going to intervene. Two more years after the cupbearer leaves prison before anything changes for Joseph. And it's not just Joseph's story. We see this in so many others through the Bible. God just takes ages to do things sometimes. And so often we think that things should be linear and that God should act now. And so often he doesn't act in our time preferences and events are not linear. We think we're going from A to B, but God thinks it's a good idea to call in on all the other letters on the way before we get to B. And our suffering for righteousness can endure a lot longer than we think it should. So I want to finish this morning just by maybe looking together at a few things of, so what do we do then? You know, If this is us, and it will be probably for most of us at times, if Peter was right, if we are suffering for righteousness' sake, how do we keep going? How do you keep going when the road is hard? And it is unfair, and wrongs are not put right for long periods of time. Really, we have much to learn from our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church on this, do we not? I feel ridiculous, really, standing up and speaking to you about this, when, on the whole, I have suffered so little for Jesus. And there are so many who have suffered greatly. And so one of the reasons we engage with Open Doors as a church family is not only that we might support the persecuted church, but that we might learn from them because they have much to teach us on this issue and many others. So one thing you can do is get an Open Doors booklet or newsletter or prayer guide. I can only find one at the back, but Hugh is sitting at the back and helps lead our partnership with Open Doors. So Speak to Hugh if you want any resources, and he will help you out. But we have much to learn from the persecuted church, I think, about this. Second, I think we keep going when we know that there is a higher court. Joseph might have been condemned by men, but the courts of men still sit under a higher court, the God of heaven and earth. And we know that one day he will return as judge. And all will be made clear. Jesus himself said, the hidden things will be brought to light. All will be straightened out and put right. And in that sense, we can say with Paul, you know, if God is for us, then who can be against us? 
One day the higher court will overrule all other courts. Third, at the end of the story, uh, Joseph's able to say to his brothers, uh, you know, what you meant for evil in selling me off as a slave, God has intended for good. And Tim uh, spoke a bit about that a few weeks ago. I'm not going to repeat all he said, but this is part of how we keep going as well, I think. We hold on to the truth that what men mean for evil, God can and will turn to the good. Fourth, what do we do when we suffer for, unrighteous, for our righteousness? Well, Joseph continued to just get on with the things in front of him, didn't he? He got on with what he could. When he was in Potiphar's house, he got on with being a faithful steward of Potiphar's stuff. When he was in prison, he got on with doing what he could in prison. And sometimes when things are taken from us, work, relationships, Dreams, ministries, whatever it is, when we suffer and lose things, like Joseph, we don't down tools, sit there and have an eternal pity party and lament what we did have. We're called to get on with what we can do, even if it is smaller and seemingly lesser than what we had before. Because again, Jesus himself said, didn't he? Be faithful in little. And I know that you'll be faithful in much. So sometimes when God strips us back to little, we get on with being faithful with little. That's what we can do. And all of this, fifthly, requires faith, does it not? When the will and the workings of God are not evident and when evil seems to have the upper hand, when we suffer unjustly and there seems no imminent justice or redemption, we are required to live by faith and not by sight. To live by faith and not by sight. So, let's try and kind of gather all of that together this morning and hold it, hold it kind of in one place in us. You might want to... Um, Shut your eyes. I'm going to pray for us in a minute and, and Tim and Becky are going to um, lead us in a bit more worship. Let's try and gather this together though. You know, when we follow Jesus, we are called to a way of life where we can expect to suffer for our righteousness. We've seen the pattern through the Bible. We know the danger of self-delusion. God help us. But we've looked at some of what we can learn from Jesus and from Joseph about how to walk this path. So I want to pray for us. And then we're going to finish with the blessing of Jesus. And, and then we're going to sing again. Why, why don't you, if you're able to, why don't you stand with me while I pray? And then speak the blessing of Jesus over you. Lord, as so often, our prayer is, you know, we believe, help our unbelief, Lord. Lord, we know on one level that when we choose to follow you, it is a choice that will likely involve suffering. And on another level, we very much struggle when that comes to pass. 
So help us, Lord, help us to know the truth that when we suffer, we just walk in your path, Lord. Holy Spirit, make us humble and save us from the dangers of self-delusion. And above all, Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, give us the faith and make us faithful that we would endure in suffering for your sake. And so I will read the blessing of Jesus over us this morning. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, church family of Amblecote Community Church. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. podcast from Amblecote Community Church. For more information about who we are, what we believe and how you can get involved, check out our website 